0: I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. I want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome
1: to The Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dennis McShane, former Labour MP uh, for Rotherham between 1994 and 2012, former Minister of State for Europe between 2002 and 2005, an author of a fascinating uh, new set of diaries uh, which have just been uh, released. Labour Takes Power, the Dennis McShane Diaries, 1997 to 2001. Welcome to the podcast, Dennis. Thank you very much, Charles, thank you. It's great to have you on. Now, the first question um, that I'd like to ask is, you mentioned uh, in in the introduction uh, to the diaries that you began writing them in 1996, what prompted you to initially start writing what would become the, the diaries that you've so recently published?
0: Very simply, I'd written books uh, before I became an MP on political history, biographies of François Mitterrand, South Africa, Poland, solidarity, American international Labour politics. And every time I went through speeches, documents, resolutions of parliaments, debates, articles... If you then came across a diary entry or a personal letter, it was like a little bit of diamond light that illuminated the otherwise rather sort of dull uh, words. So I just thought to myself rather pompously, I owe this debt to future historians, to simply record everything, not everything, but what I saw and heard, what people said and did on my side of the aisle, the Labour side. It was pretty clear in '96 that Labour was going to win. I knew that Blair would probably put me into the foreign office as he did in 1997 as a parliamentary par- private secretary and assistant to Robin Cook and have me in number 10 working on Europe. So that segment of Labour policy, which was very important after the Tory years of anti-Europeanism, isolationism, and so on, I just thought it would be of interest, as I say, uh, to future stories. And then finally, I recorded over the years 2.2 million words. I don't know if you've written many articles or books, Will, but that is an awful lot of words, about 20, 25 books. And I just re- dictated them the night, made notes during the day, in the week of the weekend in my constituency home, uh, had them transcribed instantly. So are completely contemporaneous. A lot of diaries uh, sort of touch up their diaries just before publication. I decided, no, they'd stay there raw, left some hanging around, and then realised early last year, look, it's going to happen again. I mean, Labour stands a very good chance of forming the next government. This may be of interest to all the MPs and ministers, junior and enthusiastic as I was in 1997, it will come in and they can read what it was like last time, mistakes to avoid, things possibly to go for, uh, and just what the atmosphere of being a new Labour government is like, because frankly, it's hundred years since Labour was first advised to form a government uh, in 1924. We haven't been very good at winning power, if truth be told. So if we do win power, I thought back then, let me note down what it was like, and maybe the next lot will be able to keep power. Though we we we're under Blair we we won three elections, but. Uh, Labour's always, on the whole, had to surrender to Tory rule after too short a time.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is quite um, striking from reading the diaries is, particularly in the early entries, is the remarks that you make as to the, perhaps, uh, certain lack of preparedness that certain uh, ministers had going into um, the job. Do you think that that was... Not just simply uh, a case of Labour having been out of power uh, for so long, but also a case of perhaps maybe uh, the Labour Party in the 1997 election putting a bit more emphasis on presentation than perhaps some of the other groundwork that it needed to uh, once it won power.
0: It's also ministers are appointed because they are liked by the Prime Minister or they're nominated by powerful. Uh, other ministers, groups within uh, the government, Gordon Brown have the right to name, for example, ministers to the Foreign Office. So we got ministers who perhaps had never worked in Europe, didn't speak European languages, didn't know much about Europe. The civil servants love that. I mean, they're very nervous of a minister who actually knows his brief, uh, or, uh, brief and comes in. So there's that sense of the need for better uh, preparation. But... All the time the leader of the opposition, Tony Blair at that time, and his chief lieutenants like Gordon Brown and Peter Mandelson and David Blunkett and Robin Cook and Mo Molem, they were too busy fighting the Tories, hand-to-hand combat with the Tories, which is just our adversarial system, to really think through and prepare for government. Blair was a remarkable self confident leader and he had very, very good staff. Around him, as did Gordon Brown, but they didn't see eye to eye on Europe. And that tension very early emerged. As a result, I don't think that Labour government did full justice to the nation's need to finally make its peace with Europe after, well, 50 years since 1950, when Britain said, a Labour government in Britain said no to joining the first European community. And we've been squabbling and scratching and edgy on both sides, Labour and Tories, and the hope that maybe Tony Blair could finally solve this problem uh, never really materialised, I think because we didn't argue it out clearly enough beforehand. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things
1: that the and the diaries also show is uh, a feeling, a, a sense that people had, even early on, that Robin Cook might not have been entirely comfortable uh, with some of the uh, other members of the of, of the Labour cabinet, and may not have been entirely comfortable with the position that he had uh, as Foreign Secretary. I mean, how much do you think when people think of Robin Cook, they're remembering him in a kind of like a, a, a almost mythological light? We we see um, David Lammy citing him in his recent. Uh, Speech at the, at the Fabians Society and, and are failing to remember what the real man uh, was like and, and place him properly in his historical context. The
0: real man was brilliant. Uh, He's very, very clever, very able to uh, toss up between him and Gordon Brown, who was the best of the cabinet speakers. I mean, Blair was a competent speaker, but was not an orator, mm-hmm. whereas Brown and Cook was. And Cook just was a natural, he was an actor. He dominated Scottish politics, and Scottish politics is a basket of snakes. It makes fight in fighting in the Kremlin look like a bickering tea party. And if you come up through the and up to the top of Scottish politics, then you are a star politician. Gordon Brown was another one. I you disagree. I think Blair knew exactly what he was doing when he named him Foreign Secretary. He didn't want him on a domestic portfolio where, again, Gordon really wanted to rule everything. Treasury, it doesn't matter who the Chancellor is, the Treasury for 200 years wants to run the country and everybody should do what the old Etonians uh, in the Treasury decide is best for the country. So having Gordon running some other big department house, or which he had been shadowing in, or trade, which he's shadowing in, would have been a problem. And actually... He really made the job into something in the Foreign Office into something quite quite different. We, for example, we created the Department of International Development, we separated overseas aid, gave it a real budget and a big cabinet ministry Mo in Claire Shaw. Robert and Claire Shaw and cheese. But nonetheless, Britain was a much stronger presence. He was got on very well with the European uh, colleagues. He was confronted very early on with crises such as uh, the uh, Serb butcheries and massacres in Kosovo. And Tony Blair insisted, in contrast to John Major, who'd been an appeaser of the Serb dictator Slobodan Milošević, Barobin and Tony said, no, we're going to take him on, we're going to bring in Bill Clinton, we're going to assemble a European coalition, kind of... and yes, we're going to use military force. Mm-hmm. Unusual for Labour. We don't do war fighting." And they did it and and stopped Milosevic and got him out of power and got him up to the Hague where he should have been 10 years previously. There were other issues where he uh, sought to be involved in India Pakistan. I mean, that was a nightmare. Just never, ever, ever, as a foreign secretary, get involved in the India Pakistan hate fest. Uh, on either side, on either side, it doesn't work very well. Uh He set up the, put together a coalition to set up the International Criminal Court, which was a massive breakthrough. The first time we were saying internationally that heads of state do not have immunity if they commit crimes against humanity. And that was a big, big uh, breakthrough indeed. He was a strong supporter of developments in uh, in Europe. He was still a very good speaker in the House of Commons and to the Labour Party as a whole. So I I think his. Five years there, four years there, was successful. And certainly when Blair moved him to one side, uh, that left Robin very disappointed. And the rest of his time in the Commons, of course, he resigned a Iraq war in the second Blair term, uh, which many, of course, would say was his most honourable decision as a minister. He wasn't that... That happy, but actually, in terms of uh, you know, I'm a foreign office bore, a foreign policy bore. There are very few foreign ministers since 1940, since 1950, let's say, who had as much impact as as Robin did, as much command of the House of Commons, and as much admiration and respect by all, by professional politicians, MPs know who's a good. Before, but who's a good politician? Um, whatever they, the Tories say, thought of this or that aspect of Robin's policy, mm-hmm. they knew they had a master of his trade, and it was it was a treat to work with him at the Foreign Office. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And do you think that? I mean, you mentioned obviously
1: um, Kosovo and and Milosevic. There, do you think that that has too often been, even though it wasn't that long ago, overlooked in how significant. It was. I mean, when you see reports um, about uh, Ukraine and the um, invasion there, often overlooking what happened in um, Kosovo in the 1990s in in terms of, you know, recognising warfare in Europe. Do do you think that that has been, in some ways, unfortunately, not as recognised as much of an achievement as it was?
0: Achievement, that's an interesting word. I think it was an achievement. Don't forget in 1995 uh, Milosevic's men had taken out 8,000 European Muslims in Bosnia, uh, tied their hands behind their back, 8,000 men, a few women and one child, and killed them all one by one. Bang, bang, bang. It was the single biggest slaughter on European soil since the Second World War. I'm not getting into any debates about Gaza, I personally have always been extremely nervous of using the word genocide. But undoubtedly there was something genocidal or a better comparison it might have been Katyn when Stalin had executed 20,000 Polish officers and civil servants in cold blood to try and weaken Poland uh, after he uh, uh, carved it up with Hitler. And so... Uh, The Conservatives had just done absolutely nothing. Uh, Conservative ministers who left the Tory government then went and worked for Milosevic, made a lot of money out of him. I mean, that's one of the hidden scandals uh, of British diplomacy in that period. Uh, Now, Robin was lucky because just as uh, Labour won, there was a new socialist government in France and there was a much more aggressive Uh, position on the Balkans and defending democracy uh, than had been the case uh, previously. And above all, I think a key figure was Joschka Fischer, who the leader of the German Greens, great figure of the 1968 movement in Germany, became foreign secretary. And he transformed German foreign policy. German foreign policy up to then had been not quite pacifist, but neutral. It didn't do anything. It didn't get involved in any military warfare. It's soldiers, I think, under the Constitution could not operate outside of a German territory. And Joschka Fischer, with the help of Gerhard Schroeder and the Social Democratic Majority in the Bundestag, changed all of that. Um, And so the first people to walk into uh, Kosovo, I'll never forget watching it on my screens and tackle the Serbs, was a German unit led by a young lieutenant or captain who just went up to this Serb bully boy who'd been torturing and doing horrible things for 10 years, and he just pushed the Serbs' rifle to one side, and that was it. The democracy had arrived, and the Milosevic dictatorship and tyranny in Kosovo was brought to an end. So, yes, it was a significant boy, but did it go too far? Did we get intervention happy? You could argue that about Iraq. Um, and even after Iraq, uh, which turned out to be a, a mistake, then blow me down, David Cameron and William Hague, uh, were their prime minister and foreign secretary, they'd do exactly the same mistake in Libya and Syria. Uh, get rid of a government, create a failed state, no law, no education, no running water, uh, no public transport, no judges, no police. And so Libya and Syria. <laughs> Become catastrophic, internally failed states, out of which all of their citizens just want to flee. Where they want to flee, they want to flee into safer Europe, creating the migration, so-called immigrant crisis or migration crisis, choose your what words you like. Mm-hmm. In the sense, is still plaguing Europe because we got a bit too gung ho uh, with the idea that destroying leaders destroying states because we didn't like their politics or their particular perspective uh was a good thing mm. can be a necessary thing it was necessary after 10 years of appeasement of Milosevic, i think in mm. in Balkans. but in other areas you know i did like pinochet in chile as a young activist i didn't think the british army should go in and dethrone him i've I was in South Africa, wrote books on apartheid, worked with trade unions against apartheid. I never thought for a second we should take any military action against South Africa. Mm -hmm. I think um, we were perhaps seduced by the relative ease with which Milosevic was always a bully and a thug, and the moment he experienced some firmness, Uh, he just folded, collapsed like a puffball. But I think we maybe made the mistake thinking that all the other countries whose leaders we didn't like who would behave badly would perform similarly. But that's just lessons of foreign policy uh, that um, have to be learnt and relearned, and uh, each generation has to make its own mistakes, um, take its own risky decisions, but also live with the consequence of those de- consequences if those decisions don't quite come off.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely, and you mentioned William Hague. Uh, that and of course during the period of the diaries, he became leader of the Conservative Party, very much a, a eurosceptic um, leader of the Conservative Party, campaigning in, in two thousand and one to save the pound, uh, <laughs> a campaign that um, didn't have the desired effect. I, I, I don't think that Mr. Hague intended. Um, what was your feeling as to the direction of the Conservative Party? during this period and how much do you see it as a precursor to where the conservatives are now uh,
0: absolutely and william was very clever very charming very nice uh gifted author. i remember he dedicated one of his books i think of william pitt for my son who was studying at, at school at the time his parents actually lived in my constituency and were pillars of the local conservative a party there. I mean, conservatives in you know, a South Yorkshire steel and mining community like Roller, a bit thin on the ground but you know, still I mean, good for them. Let's just say William's father was a very robust South Yorkshireman with strong views on people um, from different continents and with different ideas, different views. Now William had a smart education, one of the best grammar schools in Yorkshire, and then went to Morden College, Oxford. Was a star president of the union. He made a famous speech when he was sixteen at the Tory Party conference that captured everybody. Brilliant uh, speaker, MP. I think at the age of twenty-nine or thirty, but. Uh, he came in actually relatively inexperienced to be leader of the, of the conservative party uh, and he decided uh, that if he followed the daily telegraph line the boris johnson line of making ed- europe the number one enemy for britain and making a soft pro-european i mean tony blair was far more cautious on europe than people imagine but he presented him as in the pocket of everybody in brussels and that this would lead the Tories back to victory. Well, it didn't in 2001. It didn't in 2005, and the Tories had to wait 13 years. But by the time they got into power in 2010 and William became Foreign Secretary, the whole of the right had shifted into a kind of manic, rather pathetic hostility to Europe. Nigel Farage, thanks to the BBC promoting you on Question Time and on on the Today programme, was by far the most dominant right-wing politician. And as a result, David Cameron had also decided to leave the, in a political Brexit in 2009, leave the Federation of European Central Right Conservative Parties that the Tories had belonged to. And as a result, the, we turned off uh, the, the normal path of British politics and went down the piece marked anti-Europe, uh, into isolationism i leave to others to decide whether that has been a good turn for the conservative party to be fair uh they've been in power without help from liberal democrats since 2015 but five prime ministers six foreign secretaries 11 justice secretaries the lowest ratings ever i don't want to say between 2024 and the very sad position Richie Sunak finds himself in. And it's interesting, he inherited William Hague's seat. the funny seat up in, in, in Richmond, in North Yorkshire, very posh, big landowners, very, very rich country squires and so on. Uh, and uh, absolutely safe, to, uh, conservative seat. And they've always given it to a high flyer. It was Leon Britton, who was uh, a Home Secretary and then uh, a big figure in the European Commission. Then they went to William Haig, who rose to be leader of the party. And then William Hay, talent spotted in this brilliant millionaire from Silicon Valley, you know, handing it over to him. And Bob's your uncle, the MP for North Yorkshire, is now leader of the Conservative Party. But I fear the good Tory folk of North Yorkshire uh, aren't going to see their MP prime minister for an awful lot longer. So, <laughs> yes, William. Um, I mean, he went and did a year at a business school in Seattle in Fontainebleau after Uh, he he went into consultancy, KPMG, all those things, Uh, did a year in France. I asked him if he learned any French and he shook his head. Uh, He's a good Yorkshire lad. You know, you don't don't need to actually learn French. You just speak a bit louder and they'll always understand you. And
1: just thinking about um, our relationship with Europe now, what do you think things will turn out like? Do you think that a labor government will move closer to Europe, or do you think that we're going to be um stuck in the situation that we are for at least a, a few more years to come?
0: That's a question I write about cho up my little head. I was listening, uh, you mentioned David Labby, I was listening to the discussion on Europe at the uh, Fabian New Year conference at the weekend. I, I track it closely. I've written about it. I've been there for big speeches that Keir Starmer's done. Answer is I really don't know. At times, I compare it to the decision of the United States Congress in 1917, just before they went into the First World War, and they decided the problem with America was people drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. So let's ban alcohol. They passed the famous Prohibition Act, then put in the Constitution in 1920. And that is, Britain believed Far- Nigel Farage and the BNP and Boris Johnson and William A. that the problem that Britain faced was its relationship with Europe. So let's take time out from Europe. But when you leave a treaty and you leave an outfit, you leave a golf club, you leave a party, you... I suppose you can come back quite quickly, but it took the Americans sixteen years, from twenty seventeen to nineteen thirty three. Sorry, nineteen seventeen to, to uh, nineteen thirty three before they reversed prohibition and they they liked the criminality, Al Capone, uh, this ludicrous notion that a civilized country can't have a glass of beer or a, a shot of whiskey. I mean, complete. You know, there were nutcases cases in America who thought if only Americans stopped drinking alcohol, we become a great country again. We stand we work harder, we work longer, we'd be faithful to our wives, our children, will be blonde, blue eyed gods and goddesses. And you you could have heard all the same from Boris and William and Dominic Cummings and all the in the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph. Once we're out of the European Union, we'll have three hundred and fifty thousand million pounds a week to spend on the NHS. We'll have massive new export markets. Our trade will boom as long as we um, um, kicked out all the European workers. I'm not going to go into a, 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 a checklist, a fact check of just how bad leaving the EU has been for us. Whether after the next election some Tories will come to their senses. Don't forget, I first stood for Parliament in 1950 years ago. God, that's how old I am. 1974, when I was a sort of baby. And Labour was... Utterly dominated by the Labour equivalents of Jacob Rees-Mogg or Suella Braverman, mm-hmm. renting against Europe. Identical language. And good did it do Labour? We, uh, 1983, we we stood on an election manifesto to leave the European Community. While well, we remained out of power for another 14 years. So. Just curious whether any younger, sensible Tory MPs who are not digging over the past but know how to draw a veil over the past and say, "Let's start being grown up about Europe again." We'll, we'll, we'll watch this space. It won't be. It can't be done without sort of all-party agreement. It can't be done if the majority of the press are hostile and just repeating anti-European. Propaganda, but Nigel Farage is old. Boris Johnson is old. Uh, I I've, I've, don't find younger Tories quite as obsessed. They've actually learned they can't rant about Europe. We've left it, and we're eight years into leaving it, and not anything in Britain is working better as a result. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and something else that has, I think, been on the, the the
1: public's mind a lot, and something you've been involved with for many years is obviously the trade union movement. And I just wondered. Comparing how trade unions are thought of when you first became involved in politics to the trade union movement of today, how do you think things have changed? How much do you think people's opinions of the trade unions have changed? And what do you think the long-term impact of the current strikes will be, both on the perceptions of the trade unions and maybe on trade union membership as well?
0: Well, to talk narrowly on the strikes, one of the most amusing aspects about the strikes is uh, it's technically the biggest strike wave ever in British history. You giant general strikes in 1926 when yeah. everybody went on strike. But in terms of days lost in so many different industries, the Sudak strike wave will go into the history books as one of the biggest ever. And the paradox is that every one of those strikes was endorsed by a secret ballot vote under Margaret Thatcher's trade union legislation. Because in the rest of Europe, when I went to work uh, with German trade unions in the 1980s, you couldn't go on strike unless 75% of all your uh, union members in an industry voted for the strike in a secret ballot. Now, when I started as a young president of the NUJ, you just went into a workplace and. Journalists' newsrooms aren't very important, but, you know, engineering factories, power stations, then you just have a big corner meeting in the car park and people will put up their hands and didn't even really count them properly. And actually, Mrs. Thatcher's secret ballot strike legislation should have been adopted by the trade unions, not, not imposed by government. So these are Thatcher strikes, but trade unions generally right across the world Obviously, have lost so much power. They came in at the beginning of the twentieth century as a growing force to represent mm. working class. They've gone out with the twentieth century because that working class simply has dis- disappeared. Mm. Majority of workers uh, in, in in the year nineteen hundred were domestic servants, mm. but no, there's no national union of, of scullery maids. And, uh, and and wait, cook, cooks and so on uh, and the great force of the working class uh, for 50, 60, 70 years was number one it sent its men I stress men to die for Britain in two world wars and in the second world war entered fully under Ernest Bevan and other trade union leaders into mobilising the nation alongside Winston Churchill to defeat fascism and defeat Nazism so it earned its right as a, 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 a realm of part of the uh, well, 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 the giant bodies within the United realm of the United Kingdom. Uh, and also their own members could stop the wheels turning, could stop coal driving. Uh, you know, you're too young to remember it, but I can remember three-day weeks. I can remember candles having to be lit in newsrooms to work because there was no electricity, no heating, and so on. All of that's kind of gone. And I don't quite see it easily coming back here and there. The brave people trying to organize in Amazon. I mean, good luck to them. Um, But the rest of the working class quite likes Amazon arriving a few hours after you've ordered it. It costs almost nothing. So I don't, you know, public transport now is Uber. It's Bolt. It's not even taxis, let alone municipalized, unionized public transport. So that is um, just a change of, of, of culture and the Democratic left has always got to find other connections, connecting rods with other groups in society. Uh, the trade unions in no country I know in Europe any longer have that presence or the United States, Canada, Australia have that presence or 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 force. I don't I doubt very much, for example, if a Starbucks government comes in and you know, most of the my friends in the in the Shadow Cabinet are friendly with trade union leaders, but uh it, it won't be the same in way, way in which Dennis Healy told me once he had to take phone calls two or three times a day from a trade union general secretary when he was chancellor of the Exchequer. That's profoundly undemocratic. If you had to take some stupid boss uh, in the Midlands, you wouldn't like that. And frankly, trade union leaders also should not have caught up the chance of the Exchequer who's democratically elected and start telling him what to do. Mm-hmm. Do you think
1: then that given the situation that the trade union movement in, that this may have longer term repercussions for the Labour Party, potentially in terms of its funding, given how much support uh, the trade unions provide to, to
0: Labour? Look, my problem is I spent 15 years working in European countries. I we... mean, They just look, the social democratic parties, the socialist parties in uh, Spain or Italy, just look at us and see with us what you allow trade union general secretaries to stand up and dictate what you should do at your party conferences. Um, I mean, you can't go and dictate to trade unions what they should do at their trade union Mm -hmm. congress. And there's a clear separation, respect, friendship, alliance. But that is why one of the most important things, and I'm sad to say uh, the current Labour opposition is still ducking it, it's a constant point in my diaries, I, I notice, I mean, I learned things from rereading the ones for 1997-2001, oh, that was important to me. One of them is, we must move to democracy, paying for democracy. If you leave any party having to crawl around very rich people like Tories do, or accept huge donations from Putin oligarchs based in London, as the Tories did, or have to do the same to trade union general secretaries. And the going rate for peerage then for a trade union general secretary I know somewhere, I mean, a trade union guy told me, was £300,000. You donated £300,000 to the Labour Party, you got your peerage. They're much cheaper now, and they've got some really wacky ones, like this famous... uh, the Baroness Moan lady from Scotland um, just, you know, what is she doing? And what is the sort of 29-year-old sort of very nice blonde lady who worked for five minutes with Boris Johnson doing in the House of Lords? And what is uh, the, the, the son of a Putin KGB agent doing in the House of Lords? So all the gifts uh, are, are Boris Johnson and other Tory leaders and they completely demean and devalue the meeting of Parliament because in I don't think any other country you have lawmakers and the House of peers members of the House of Lords are British lawmakers who are there simply because they signed a big cheque to uh, one of the big parties in the country. So I mean, Robin, Robin. interestingly enough, I re- argued it with him. And he said, "No, you. It won't work, Dennis. You're quite wrong. The British people just don't want uh, political party funding from the state. They won't accept it." and now oh, you know that was the knee jerk reaction of most people's partly my knees jerk too as well when the argument came up but the more i thought about it it's common in europe it's not perfect it doesn't stop external party financing some corruption some dodgy relationships basically democracy should pay for democracy not rich billionaires or trade unions uh with uh, members' donations to wield around to get political influence. Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. Um, We're coming towards the end of the podcast, Dennis, and thank you for taking the time to speak to me, but I do have one final question for you. If you had to pick one entry from the diaries that you think is perhaps the most important or best sums up the period that you're chronicling, which
0: single entry
1: would you most like to pick?
0: I think some of the discussions in Number 10 about European policy, they were serious. They brought in uh, our finest intellectuals on Europe, people like Timothy garton Ash or Charles Grattan on Central European Reform, brought brought in uh, very, very smart uh, diplomats, top civil servants. And the guys who rise to the top of the Foreign Office uh, are very highly trained and speak three or four languages and know what's going on. And Blair was genuinely curious and interested in how Britain could better work in uh, in 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 Europe, uh, and uh, I don't feel really since then, the, either later on under Gordon Brown, certainly not since twenty ten, we've had any politicians, uh, either junior figures in government like me or the more senior cabinet people, mm-hmm. really turned their brains on and thought hard uh, about our relationship with our partners and you can't handle it frivolously. And if you look at British history, all the great things Pitt, Gladstone, Palmerston, Lloyd George, Churchill, always were thinking about the relationship with the European Mm -hmm. nation. The EU didn't exist then. And we've just stopped thinking about it and the press coverage, the BBC coverage of European politics. I mean, frankly, a bat can sort of sit down, have a little shit in Nevada and it leads the BBC News because it's America and big political decisions next door to us are taken and get zero uh, coverage. So, you've set me a task, so now, Will. I've got to go and reread the bloody book and find the, the sexy entry. And if anybody else of asked that question, I've got it. Well, I'm glad to have been able to help if that question is asked in the future again.
1: Um, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to speak to me, Dennis. If people want to find out more about you or want to buy uh, a copy of the book, which I I, I greatly uh, suggest that they do, very,
0: true. very, very, gentle. I have to say, I don't understand publishing, but they put a ridiculous cover price on it, £25. But I'm buying it on Google for half that, and that's about the price of a good paperback. So go for that. And if anybody's listening, uh, and I hope millions are, I'm very happy to come to, uh, well, obviously any Labour Party meeting, but also just any debating clubs, speaker societies. There's lots and lots, every town, every big town, cities, even small villages. Now have live events, uh, which is wonderful. People aren't are getting all the information from TV or online or on TikTok or on, on on Twitter X. They are inviting all sorts of people in to talk live in the fresh and ask questions. I think there's far more debate happening in Britain than we properly realise. And I'm very very happy to come along and just talk about what it was like in those four years. Uh, of the first-player government and what that lessons can be drawn or pointers can be seen for what it's going to be like if uh, Kistama does, uh, as I hope, form the next Labour and the next government of our country. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, edit.
1: All right, thanks a lot, Bill. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Podcast, like us on Facebook, Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at the at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.